The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. A swing and a drive to deep right, away back, goal! UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, an in-depth look at the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For the fifth consecutive year, we examine the teams and their progress throughout the baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show for this Monday night, September the 26th, as we enter the last week of the regular season for Major League Baseball in this 2016 season. Everything will end up on Sunday. The, hopefully the Cleveland Indians will have the American League Central Division wrapped up by then. Their magic number is one heading into tonight's game as they are playing in Detroit against the Tigers. Meanwhile, the Reds, well, a lot of questions are going to be answered about this ball club as we head into the 2017 season. And to do that, to answer those questions, we've got to go down south and bring in our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you tonight? And before we get into everything about the Reds and the Indians, we want to talk about, of course, the the sad, sad news about Jose Fernandez of the Marlins yesterday. Yeah, I, I can't remember anything bothering me as much uh, recently uh, as that, uh, only because uh, I have some very, very good friends down in South Florida and besides being a great pitcher, this guy was a was really a an outstanding person, and that's that's what you hate to hear about. Uh, you know, obviously the, the the baseball is part of it, but this guy was uh, really into the community. Uh, his story coming from Cuba and uh, getting captured three times and finally making it, and his unbelievable talent was really a side part of his personality and his contribution to the community, and uh, he's, he's a guy who's going to be missed on a number of levels, and uh, it's just it's such a tragic waste of talent, and uh, <laughs> of course, um, y- you wonder, you know, what he was thinking when he's taking a, a boat, uh, apparently at high speeds at night, uh, and I know exactly where that happened. I used to have a boat down there. I lived in in South Florida, had a boat, and many times went down that area. And um, you know, it's unless you're uh, completely out of it, uh, you know those jet, those jetties are there. That it's a rock uh, jetty that sticks out from the shore, uh, and you know it's it's one of those things. Like if you're a driver, you know where the stop signs are. Well, that's exactly what those things are, and it's hard to imagine how that could have happened to the guy. You know, it's ironic, considering the trek that he took to get into the United States from Cuba, trying four different times to get into the States by, by floating on little flotation devices marked from Cuba, the 90 miles to get to the, the tip of Florida into Miami. The first three times, it was a failure. The fourth time, he finally made it. And it's just ironic the the way that he went in the water the way that he did. Although, from what I understand from the stories that came out today, it was not drowning. It was supposedly him hitting the rocks on that little jetty. Yeah, and uh, again, I saw pictures of the boat. I'm sure many of our listeners have. And uh, believe me, when you hit, if you're going, and I, I don't know how fast they were going, and probably we'll never find out, but uh, to cause that kind of damage, you had to be going at least 40, 45 miles an hour in the water. And if you've ever had a boat, you know what happens when you even hit a log at that uh, at that speed or hit something solid. It sounds like a bomb going off at the bottom of your boat, and I can only imagine what that felt like uh, when they when they hit that. And uh, you could certainly understand and see how they were thrown out of the boat onto the rocks. And if that were the case, uh, that, that's not a survivable event. You know, normally we talk about ex-ball players, Mark, that have passed away during the regular season. I mean, I think the last one that we had to talk about that was an active ball player was Daryl Kyle. 
No, you know, it's funny. I thought that, too. Uh, Daryl Kyle um, happened in, what, 2002, I think. Uh, yeah. There have been just – I'm just stunned. I, I, I got on uh, online and looked at the number of players that I can recall, and I, I look back, some of these names I'm sure you'll remember, uh, but this is just a, a, a small sampling. Uh, of course, Fernandez, Steve Olin, Tim Cruz, Daryl Kyle. Oh, that was back in 93, yeah. Yeah, Those Nick two. Aidenhart, who's with the Angels. That only happened a few years ago. Uh, Lyman Bostock, Corey Lytle, Thurman Munson, Roberto Clemente, Oscar Tavares. Remember him? The Cardinals just a couple of years ago. Uh, Don Wilson, uh, Cliff Young, Dick Wants, Jim Umbright, Danny Thompson, Darnell Stinson, Mike Sharperson, Chico Ruiz, uh, Mike Miley, uh, Ken Hubbs, Jose Lima. All these guys were playing professional baseball when they died, and I'm just t- touching on a few of them. Uh, it, it's an amazing number of people that, that died. Uh, there was another guy named Mike Darr, who, in 2002, an outfielder for the San Diego Padres. I'd forgotten about him. Uh, you know, some died of illnesses, some died of one guy, Ed Delahanty, remember him? He was pitched back in the early 1900s. He died by being swept over Niagara Falls. <laughs> it's, if you're going to go, I guess that's the way to go. <clears throat> but if you if you get online and check this out, there must be, I don't know, 60 or 70 pitchers who died, or players who died during the season uh, as active professional baseball players. And I was stunned by it. Many of them were back in the 1800s or early 1900s, but some are very recent within the last 20, 30 years. And uh, it it, it was a a shocking revelation to me to see all these people. And the one that I guess sticks out more of a personal thing was Thurman Munson. Because the, I knew the pilot of that plane. A guy named Jerry Anderson was the pilot. And uh, he was in the left seat when the plane went down. And I remember Jerry, he worked for me, uh, coming in and talking about that day and what happened and how he, he, he and the guy in the right seat were able to get out and the plane caught on fire. Thurman was in the back seat. I'm sorry, Thurman was in the front seat. Jerry was in the back seat giving him lessons. Thurman was pinned in, in the crash, and but he was conscious. The other guys got out, and they could not go back and get Thurman. And I know that haunts both those guys to this day, but he said Thurman's back had been broken. He was paralyzed. He couldn't get out of the plane, and that always resonated with me because I actually saw the scars on the guy's body, Jerry's body, mm-hmm. from, the, from the burns from the, from the plane crash. So that always stuck with me as something, although I, I didn't know Thurman, um, somebody who had been on that plane. And you look at, at this list, and it's, it really is amazing how many of those guys died of boating accidents or car crashes or plane crashes. Those seem to be the three things that killed most of those players. And, of course, uh, Fernandez being the latest. Well, you know, it really resonated big time here in the Cleveland area because of what you mentioned earlier about the accident with with Tim Cruz and Steve Olin. You know, Steve Olin, a lot of people don't realize this, was an outstanding reliever for the Indians. He was a Dan Quisenberry type, Mark. He, He threw sidearm, outstanding reliever for a team that had finished in last place. But a lot of people up here feel like if they would have had Steve Olin uh, throughout the the heyday of the Indians, because he was he was young, he was only 27 years old when this happened. Uh, the Indians probably would have won two World Series, maybe maybe even three, especially the '97 World Series, because they wouldn't have had to transform Jose Mesa into a closer. But Bobby Ojeda, if you remember him, the left-hander, used to pitch yes. for the Mets. Uh-huh. He was with the Indians. He was involved in that boating accident on Little Lake Nelly down near Winter Haven, Florida, he was never the same, Mark. He never he suffered from survival. Uh, he just could not overcome the fact that he was the one that survived the accident, and he was never really able to pitch again. He tried to finish out the season with the Indians, and I think he pitched once or twice during that year. Just couldn't overcome it, and he was really never the same after that. And every once in a while you hear about Olin and Cruz's 
uh, widows and how they're they're remarried and things are good. But you know, I remember in '93, Mark, because that accident happened during spring training and going to opening day because it was the last opening day that they were going to have at Old Municipal Stadium. They were going to tear it down, and the Indians were moving into Jacobs Field at the time called Jacobs Field the next year. So it was the final opening day. And that was a ceremony followed by a memorial for Cruz and Olin. And I remember the Garth Brooks song, The Dance, being played for those two on opening day. And out of the 73,000 that were there, Mark, and there was 73,000 there, uh, there was not a dry eye in the house. Jeez. It, it's just amazing, you know. And, and I can understand why the Marlins canceled yesterday's game with the Braves. They played it again today. They, they decided to go ahead and play today. But you know what? The Marlins' hearts have been yanked out of their chest. Even though they were out of the wild card situation, Mark, and we'll go over the wild card standings here in a little bit, their hearts were yanked out of their chest yesterday. And, and for all intents and purposes, the season is done for them. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I look at the family and what they're going to have to endure forever now, uh, and what I think the worst thing about a young man like that being killed is what could have been. Uh, and, and people talk about his his skills, but he he was really beyond uh, norm. He, he was he, this guy could have been. He had the stuff, the mentality, and you look at his statistics. He's going to lead the league in strikeouts this year. He's only 24 years old. Yeah. And what, what he could have accomplished over the next 10, 15 years is really unbelievable. He could have been a Hall of Famer. We'll never know. And that's the point. We'll never know. And it, it will always be that what-if scenario that uh, that people from Miami and anybody part of baseball will remember. And it, it, when I was watching all the, the, the comments on TV and reading in the papers and online, this guy was very well liked by other players. And that that's that's really a key to me. Uh, Yasiel Puig, I guess he and, and um, Fernandez were very close, and Puig was obviously very upset uh, at what had happened. But so many players, old and young, uh, marveled at this kid's talent, but more importantly, what he was as a person. And, that, again, that's what's going to be missed more than even his baseball. Well, you know, he was in majors from 2013, 14, 15, and 16. This was his fourth year. Now, keep in mind, in that 2014 season, he had Tommy John surgery. Mm-hmm. And he was out for a while. His career record, 38 and 17. Mark, he was 16 and 8 this season, a 2.86 ERA. He started every game that he appeared in, in Major League Baseball. Never came out of the bullpen once. Ironically, he never threw a shutout. When he looked at his stats, he never threw a shutout. He never had a complete game. He threw 182 in the third innings this year and had struck out 253, and when he had his stuff, Mark, I saw him pitch several times, I know you did too, when he had his stuff, he was electric, and that curveball was just frantic. Yeah, that was, that was a knee buckler, for sure, <laughs> and I remember seeing him on TV, I don't know if it was against the Reds or who it was, but uh, he was throwing he was throwing 97-98, but his breaking ball it was coming in at 93-94, his slider. And it, it was just, you see a thing coming at you, and you don't want to stand in there. And, and some really good hitters were having embarrassing at-bats against him. And uh, he had the kind of arm that, you know, when he came back from Tommy John, the question was, would he have his stuff back? He was throwing harder when he came back. And yeah. he was a big, strong kid. And, uh, you know, what happened to him, again, will be something that the Miami fans and baseball fans in general are never going to forget. Uh, you know, another when you when you look at these this list, I remember when I I think I was a junior in high school, and I went down to Crosley Field and I saw the Cubs play, and they had a second baseman named Ken Hubs, and I think it was either the last series or the last game of the year. Uh, he looked like he was my age. I mean, he didn't look much older than me, and I went down and I just happened to be by the dugout and I shook my hand out and shook his hand. And I can, and I, you know, I wasn't like a big fan of his, but he was nearby and I wanted to shake his hand, and I did. 
And uh, so, you know, I, I didn't think much about it. I went home, and, and over the winter, some, I think it was in February, I found out he had been killed in a plane crash. He was rookie of the year that year in, in 1964, never played again. And I shook his hand. I don't know if it was the last game he ever played, but I know it was the last series because they played the Cubs. Uh, the Cubs played the Reds at, at, at Crosley Field. And it was in the fall. It's, I remember that vividly. But it was a strange feeling. I'd shaken his hand, and then he, you know, he gets killed um, a few months later. So again, it, it's the memories that will last forever, and things you will never ever forget. And that's the tragedy of all this: is that uh, death lasts a real long time. Mark, we correlated this with the Indians. Let's correlate it a little bit as we wrap this this part of our show up tonight with the Reds. Yesterday. Eduardo Perez talked with Hannah Storm on ESPN, and a lot of people were talking about just the heartfelt empathy that Eduardo showed toward Jose and the entire Fernandez family. And something that maybe a lot of people don't know, first of all, Eduardo Perez is the son of Tony Perez, the Reds great, but that Tony Perez and his wife were so close to Jose Fernandez because of Eduardo, and Eduardo talked about that yesterday on ESPN. Mm-hmm. But the hardest part for me was telling my dad this morning. It's like losing a kid. It's like losing his grandson. That's the part that really hurts, because uh, when I told him, he started yelling. Uh, it's emotional. Uh, I don't have to explain it to the Latinos, because they know, but this is a kid that would go and play dominoes at my parents' house. Uh, very tight-knit. My mom always made sure that, you know, everyone was taken care of. And she will still make sure that everyone's taken care of. I guarantee you the biggest concern right now is for his mom and his grandmother. You know, a lot of people don't realize, Mark, that the Cuban community was wound very, very tightly. I'm talking about family-wise. Even if you were not part of the family via DNA, boy, if you were from Cuba and you came over to the United States, you were part of a huge, huge family, especially down in that Miami area. That's true. And uh, what he had, uh, I heard a very different anecdotal uh, detail of this, but apparently when they were coming over from from Cuba, uh, a woman fell into the ocean off the boat they were on when he was approaching, or just left uh, Cuba, I guess. Uh, Jose jumped in the water, and he saved the woman's life not knowing that it was his mother who had fallen yeah. in the boat. And um, <laughs> I, I think that bespeaks uh, what kind of guy he was, risking his life uh, to save someone and then finding out he was saving the life of his own mother. But, again, it, it's there's just nothing you can say. Um, it's it's a horrible situation, and unfortunately for the family, it won't get better anytime soon. Well, let's move on to the Indians and the Reds. First of all, the Indians, Mark, because they're 90 and 65 entering tonight's game with Detroit. Their magic number is one. Over the last couple of days, the Indians really have not tried to win the division. I've got to tell you, they've played a bunch of nobodies. They pitched a bunch of nobodies on Saturday night, played a bunch of nobodies yesterday. They got beat two in a row by the White Sox when they had an opportunity to win the division. I guess I've got to ask you, Mark, what school of thought do you come from? I mean, you've had a lot more experience at this than the Indians have, being that the Reds have won division titles and the Indians really have not as of late. Are you of the opinion that if you're a ball club, just go ahead and win the division and then rest your players, or just kind of rest your players here and there, and the division winning the division when you're up like the Indians are will come when it should? Well, I think that obviously depends on how many games you're ahead. Uh, I, I like the the second option better because I don't think you, you I think the worst thing to do is to rest your players all at once after they've clinched. I think there's a psychological letdown. It's hard to get that back. And, and you mentioned last week how many times. Um, I, I, now, if I get this, if I recall this statistic, uh, the last 24 times a, a team has finished with the best record. Uh, how many times have they won the World Series? Can you, Not many. One. I would think pro- one. One time. I was going to say four or five. Only one time. So uh, there is something that happens psychologically to a team, and you've played sports. 
you know, when you are on a roll and every game is important and you're dialed in, uh, there's a certain amount of emotion and, and even physicality that goes into that that is absent uh, when the game isn't on the line or it's not important. And sometimes the teams that, that just skate in, I mean, you look at the Cardinals. The Cardinals are what, 17 games behind the, the Cubs, something like that. But the Cardinals could get into the playoffs, and they can win the World Series if they get hot and, and if they barely made it in. The Cubs have been <clears throat> shoe-ins to win the division since June, and uh, it really they haven't played tough baseball. They've played baseball. It's easy to play baseball when you get a 15-game lead in your division. You can go up there and just be relaxed. If you lose, so what? That's a different mindset than you, you look at the, I guess it's the American League uh, West uh, or any any team in the American League with, with the wild card in play. Uh, every game is important. And that is the kind of edge you want going into the playoffs. And they're going to be, those teams are going to be sky high when the playoffs start because they've been playing playoff baseball for the last month. Look at the National League. You know, the Cardinals, the Giants, the Mets, they're all within a half a game of each other. When those teams, when, when the flag drops and, they, and the playoffs begin, those teams have already played playoff baseball for the last three or four weeks. The, the, the Cubs have not. And I wonder yeah. if that's come back and haunt the Cubs. Here's what's ironic. Let's go over the wild card standings here very quickly. You've got the Mets, San Francisco, and St. Louis, like you said. They are all within a half a game of each other. The Mets have the top spot, San Francisco, then the second wild card, and St. Louis a half a game out behind San Francisco. Now, Mark, would you say that prior to the Fernandez death, Miami was still in the playoffs? No, not not realistically. When, not when you have to No, I'm just saying, would you have said that they are – have a shot at the playoffs. Well, certainly they have a mathematical shot, absolutely. Okay. How about Pittsburgh? Mathematically, yeah. But, what, four and a half games out of the wild card? Yeah, I mean, you're cheating. You're, you're looking at it. My no, point I'm not. Is, is that, my point is is that you would have thought that Miami had a, had a shot at the playoffs. Pittsburgh was out. But they both have the same record. Yeah, it's because of the number of teams that they have to climb over. Yeah, but they both have this. I mean, what I'm saying is, up until yesterday, I thought Miami still had a shot. Pittsburgh was out of it. I, I didn't think Miami had a shot realistically because the, the math isn't going to work. Every team, St. Louis, New York, and the Giants would have to lose almost every game, and Miami have to win every game. That's not going to happen. See, here's the one thing that I don't like about the wild card is the way they've got the divisions broke out. If they're going to have the wild card mark, I think they've got to eliminate the divisions, set everybody up in the league the way that it was years and years ago. You know, I think prior to 1969 where it was all just one league, take the top five and the last two are your wild card teams. Because realistically, it's not fair when you look at this. St. Louis has got games against teams in the Central Division, who are better than Miami or the Mets or San Francisco have against teams in their division. Yeah, but that, that can vary from year to year. You can't look at one year and, and make a deduction. That's that's the wrong way to handle it. I mean, if, if they were playing the Reds, would you say the same thing? If who was playing the Reds? The Cardinals. They're playing the Reds this week. So... They, they have a weak team playing the Reds, so how does you – know, I, I don't understand your point. But the Red, the fact is is that you are, playing te- you are playing teams throughout the month of September that are weaker because you've got to play them inside your division than the Cardinals because the division is better in the Central Division. The teams are better in the Central than they are in the East or even out in the West. But how do you cure that? I think what you do is you set everybody up in the same division and you play everybody, every team in the National League the same amount of times. Okay, I agree with that. I do agree with that. And yesterday I heard uh, what, there's 30 teams in Major League Baseball uh, to having two 15-team leagues and no, doing away with the divisions. And I heard maybe that yeah. was what you're talking about. Yes. 
Yeah, I think that, that makes some sense. Uh, but again, what the, the, the fallacy in that is if you have a team that wins the league, you only have two pennant winners, as it were, then. Let's say it's the, uh, it's the Cubs and it's uh, Texas. And, and the Rangers right now, because the Rangers have the best right. record in the AL. So they win the, the playoffs, or the, they yeah. win the league. Then you've got, how many, how many teams do you envision in the playoffs? Five. You've got, you've got, you'd still have the top three, because you'd have the, the three division winners. You'd still take the top three, and then teams four and five would be your wild card team. But you wouldn't have division winners. You'd have... No, you don't have division winners. You would just take the top three records that would be automatically into the playoffs, yeah. and then teams four and five, which they are right now, would be your wild card teams. For example, if you look at the standings right now overall, okay, your top three teams with the best records in the National League would still be the Cubs, Washington, and the Dodgers. Then the following teams that have the, the next most wins would be the Mets, San Francisco, and St. Louis. Same way in the American League. You would still have the top three teams would be Boston, Texas, and Cleveland. And then the, the next two teams would be Toronto and Baltimore. The problem with that, Dave, is that you're not going to have the excitement in September of the tight division races. If you're a team that is eighth or ninth and you're, you know, 17 games out of first place, you have no shot at all. Uh, look at the Cardinals. The Cardinals have, still have a chance uh, in the wild at card. At the division? Yeah, to, at, not, to, not the division, but for the wild card. And I know you, what yeah. you'd say, they, they'd still have it in your scenario. But so many teams would be out of contention very early. And I think that is what the division setup does provide is that you can come back and win your division. And sometimes you could have, you could play 500 ball and, you know, be within a game of first place in your division. But if you were in a league of 15 teams, you'd be 20 games behind and not have a shot. So the division setup does create internal competition. I remember a couple of years ago, the Giants finished, what, two games over 500 and they won the World Series. Because they got into the playoffs and they were still in the division race, and what the problem? Is that some years you'll have a team like the Cubs; they're going to win probably 107 games this year, 106 games. They're so much better than everybody in the division, but that's not always the case. We talked this year; we thought that if you won 88 games, you had a chance to win the division, and that is what the division set up provides is that there look at the other leagues look at the other divisions they're much closer than the national no they're not they're not they're not close at all the only division that's close mark is the american league east and that's because boston toronto and baltimore are fighting it out for the first place spot doesn't matter who wins the division the other two teams are going to be in the playoffs but it creates the the excitement of them being in the playoffs and i i don't think the division setup was was created to get the best teams in in playoffs, mm-hmm. but to create the excitement of a tight divisional race going down to the wire when you wouldn't always have that. Now, this year, uh, the East uh, that you just mentioned uh, in, in the American League is the only t- only division that is close, but that's the exception. If you look back over the last five or six years, there's been tight divisional races that keeps the excitement up. It keeps the fans coming out. There's excitement throughout the year. Your team has a chance to win. The thing I would suggest is what they do in the minor leagues. They have bifurcated seasons. You you know you have the first half champion, second half champion, and then you know you, you give a team that gets off to a horrible start, they can start over, and that's what they do in the minor leagues. You know they they play up until the All Star break. It's usually you know eighty one games in in, in the major leagues, uh, and then they start over, and you have a chance. And, and you know the Reds are playing five hundred ball right now. Uh, in the second half of the year, so right. in, in, in a, a, a second half scenario, they probably be competitive for a playoff spot. And then you're going to run in. You're going to run into the same situation. What, what year was that, Mark? Was it '81, '82, where the Reds finished with the best record in baseball and didn't make the playoffs because it was it was a strike situation and they did it that way? That's right. Uh, they, they won. They won the first half. And they had the best record in baseball, and they did not make it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, there was a lot of yelling and screaming about that. As there should have been. 
Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, anyway, let's talk about the Reds a little bit because the Reds, as of this Sunday, the season will be over. But like you said, they've been playing some good baseball since the All-Star break. They've done an outstanding job. Now, we talked about this last week, Homer Bailey. You know, the pros and cons of having him come back the way I understand it, he is not coming back this year. That's right. He's done. And as I mentioned last year, I think the bigger issue, it, who cares if he comes back and pitches this year? It doesn't really matter. Uh, you can make arguments on both sides of that. My issue is, uh, and there's something you can do about it, you know, his career may be over. And I think that thought is now going to go into the off season, and the unknown about Homer Bailey is going to force the Reds to go out and make a deal for a frontline pitcher. They're going to have to. Uh, they they can't rely on the on the, the staff they have now. It's, there's too many unknowns in it, and you're going to have to have somebody come in and anchor that thing down. I think your suggestion of next year, if they have thoughts about his durability, is to put him in the bullpen. The guy can still crank it up 97, 98. At least he could. Um, he, he, he's thrown that hard this year already, but he, he apparently he has arm pain. So you can't have a starter that you build into your rotation that you can't depend on. You have to have a dependable starting rotation. And what's happened with the Reds is a perfect example. In the first half of the year, they had the worst record in baseball because th- th- their five top starters were all injured. At the beginning of the year, every one of them was injured. And they, they did not have one starting pitcher that they envisioned. And, and thank God for Dan Straley, who came in this year. He's won 14 games, and he, he's, he was a real find. But can you depend on him for next year? Who knows? Uh, Tony uh, Discafani has not pitched consistently this year. Uh, and he's going to be – he was supposed to be your number one. And so what do you do with Rosale Iglesias, who's absolutely been spectacular out of the bullpen? I mean, yesterday came in. The Reds' bullpen last yesterday struck out the last seven brewers they faced. I mean, they were throwing gas. If they had that kind of bullpen at the beginning of the year, they'd be in playoff contention. They'd have a record like the Cardinals. But they blew so many games at the beginning of the year. But Homer Bailey is a key cog in the decision-making for 19, or 2017 for the Reds. And uh, I think there's every reason to, to cast doubt on his his viability next year as a starting pitcher. Well, let me ask you about a few players and what their status are with the Reds next year. Let's start out with Dan Straley. Is he in the plans for the Reds next year? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's if he wins his next start, 15, 15 and 10, something like that, uh, he definitely he would be a guy you would you would pencil in. But with his stuff, if he came to a tryout, you'd watch him pitch and you'd say, "Yeah, he's maybe a number five starter." So if you're penciling him in as your number one, uh, you better hope he doesn't have a relapse uh, to you know regress to the mean and uh, you know not be the effective pitcher that you that you had this year. And I got to tell you, Dave, it's not easier to pitch. When your team is way out of it or you're way ahead, you can pitch without pressure. If this team is going to compete, you want somebody who's been there before, and Dan Cerilli has not. Uh, Di Scafani, he's still an unproven entity. So, again, beyond that, what do you have? in the Reds, if, if you don't have Bailey, what do you have coming back? Well, let, all right, let's talk about a couple more. Brandon Finnegan, is he in the Reds' plans? Oh, absolutely. He pitched well yesterday. But, again, he's hot and cold. He's going to have a losing record this year. I think they'll probably shut him down now. I, I don't think he'll pitch again this year. Uh, he is a five-inning pitcher so far. He's got good stuff. I think he'd be a stud out of the bullpen where, he, you know, he pitched at one time. But, again, if, if you have to force him into the rotation, uh, there goes that option. Robert Stevenson. I think he's been the biggest bust so far. Uh, I can't think of one uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, he's 0-9, uh, and he's pitched like it. Uh, he has not pitched one solid game. He, 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 in his first time out, he pitched pretty well. But a lot of hits, I don't know what his whip is, but it's, it's got to be close to two. And he, he just doesn't, he doesn't have the put-away stuff uh, at the major league level. He, he throws hard. He has no movement. 
Um, I, I don't see. I think he's been way, way overrated from what I've seen so far. And uh, maybe in the off season he'll find a magic touch. What about Lorenzen? What What are their plans with him? I think I see him as a, a short reliever, maybe eighth inning guy. He can come in and throw very hard for a short period of time. You know, I think he'll get better. And again, if you can shore up that eighth inning. Uh, and have Iglesias in the ninth inning. That, that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty good one-two punch. But again, the Reds need some left-handers. Uh, Tony Singrani uh, is the biggest uh, anathema, I think, to this Reds rota- uh, this Reds pitching staff because he comes out of the bullpen and he can't get the first hitter out. I think it's 17 times he's allowed through hit or walk the first batter he faced to reach base, that's out of your potential closer. That is the kiss of death. Devin Mezzarocco. Uh To be determined. Uh, if he comes back with his bat, uh, the Reds lineup is going to be formidable. It, it is going to be a very, very deep lineup if he can come back. The question, as you've said, with the injuries he's had, can he catch? And if he can't catch, I don't see a spot for him for the Reds. So now you're talking about trade bait. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the Reds, again, can't seem to get out of their way in terms of the injury bug. But Devin Mesoraco has a chance to hit 20, 25 home runs. And uh, if he does, the Reds are going to be tough offensively next year. Three more names quickly. Zach Cozart. I think he's done with the Reds. I, I don't think okay. they'll re-sign him. Um, he, I like him. Good guy, good shortstop. But the Reds have too many options in the middle infield. Brandon Phillips. I think he'll come back. You know, he's hitting close to 290. Uh, I think he can be a stabilizing force. And the good thing about Brandon is he can hit anywhere. Now, will he move to another position? I don't know. I mean, I still think he'd be a great third baseman, but he may not move over. I there. do too. Yeah, I, I do too. He's made four. Brian, by the way, Dave, he, he made 14 errors this year. Two years ago, he made one, and two, uh, three years ago, he made two. You know, that, that just shows he's he's lost his mobility. Mm-hmm. Brian Price. I think he'll be brought back um, because I think he's earned it. Number one, he's, he's kept the team from going completely south in the second half of the year, and I think he deserves to have an opportunity to you know manage his team on the uptick. Well, uh, what do you think going into the off season, as of a week from tonight? the Reds need to do in the off season in order to make themselves competitive next year? What's the one thing they need? I think they need another power bat. Uh, and I don't know where you put that power bat other than third base, but uh, I heard some rumors the other day about the Reds talking to the Brewers about Ryan Braun and, or signing Ryan Braun as a free agent. He's played third base before. Uh, and, uh, man, you put him in that lineup with Devin Mazzaracco and, and Joey Bado, who I want to get into in a few minutes, um, you do have a potent lineup. And I, I don't see a problem with keeping Brandon Phillips. Um, unless they get something for him, I would not give him away. He's hitting 290. You know, he's driven in 60 runs. He, he plays a decent second base, but I think he could be an outstanding third baseman, as we said. You can do something with Brandon Phillips. Well, you're going to have to trade for Ryan Braun because he signed through the 2021 season. Yeah. I remember when the Indians were looking for him, I looked that up. Yeah, I, Yes, but he, he's on the block, and it wouldn't surprise me you might see a waiver deal with him uh, after the season, um, people passing on him. Uh, I don't know what his value is in the marketplace, uh, but you know he would be the kind of bat that could really – uh, fortify the Reds lineup, again, if you add Mesoraco to that mix. But I think they need a bat. And, again, as we talked already, if Homer Bailey is not available, or even if he is, I think you have to go out there and look for a uh, somebody at the top of your rotation, number two or number three guy. And uh, if the Reds were able to get that, they'd be competitive next year. Mark, the Indians right now are battling for the best record in the American League with Texas and Baltimore for home field advantage. Does the home field advantage, and in my mind, it doesn't mean that much in baseball. What do you think about it in baseball, the home field advantage in the playoffs? These guys play so many games on the road, I don't think it is that big a deal. I think it's a much bigger deal in basketball and football. 
but not in baseball. And having play, in fact, you know, there's an argument that says that you you get away from the distractions when you're on the road. All you do is play baseball, and I can understand that. You know, if you're you're home, you got the kids, you have your wife, you have things you have to do, you have bills to pay. You know, it's all that stuff. You get on the road and you're playing baseball. So I don't think it's a big deal, um, and I think most professionals would agree that uh, it doesn't matter if, if a guy if a guy's throwing 98 on the outside corner, you're not going to beat him no matter where you are. <laughs> so, uh, and you can hit a hanging curveball just about anywhere. Well, we we're going to be saying goodbye, Mark, to one of the biggest announcing icons this weekend in Vin Scully. He is stepping down. Mark, 67 years this guy has been calling Major League Baseball for the Dodgers. I'm not even that old. You know, I mean, that that, that is unbelievable how long he has been calling Major League Baseball games. Yeah, it is. When you think, uh, I saw a picture of him. Uh, it was a black and white photo of him at Ebbets Field with Jackie Robinson. Now that that's that's a guy who's been around for a while. He's 88 years old, and if you listen to him, I used to live in L.A. and I got hooked on listening to him because people may not realize this, but he only now he only calls home games, but he calls every game by himself, every inning, every pitch. There's yeah. nobody else in the booth. Nope. And, that's, and and you know what, Mark? That is very difficult to do. I've done that. I love calling baseball. But it's very difficult to do by yourself. Yeah, it is. There's nobody to bounce stuff off of, and right. that's. And I, I look at what uh, Marty Brenneman does now. Marty Brenneman, he, he he calls when he's in the booth. He calls six or seven innings. Uh, you know, his partner Jeff Brantley normally calls the other three or four innings, and he he does. I don't know how many games he called this year. It seems to me that he's probably only calling maybe 100 games. And, and he's earned that over a, a very distinguished broadcasting career. But he's, he's 70, I think Marty's, what, 73, 72? Uh, not that he's a spring chicken, but you look at what Ben Scully does at 88, calling yeah. every home game. That's, that's, that's amazing. And he sounds, that's... if you didn't know he was 88, you would never in a million years guess he was. And, and look where the press box is. He's got to go up and down the elevator. He's got to drive to the game. I don't know if he's got a driver or not. But oh, I'm still, sure he does you, by now. You know, <laughs> by, by now probably. But, you know, there's a lot of other things that go to broadcasting a baseball game than just showing up, sitting down, and doing the game. Yeah, you got to do your homework. Do as well as he does. Yeah, you got to do your homework if you're going to do it well. And one of the, I think one of the best overrated uh, broadcasters in the Reds' history has been Chris Welsh. I mean, I like Chris. I, I've met Chris several times, and uh, he does his homework. He knows what he's talking about. And a lot of these guys don't do their homework. They show up, and they, they are not students of the game as they should be, and they shoot from the hip. And and one, I think one of the, the worst uh, – announcers that I think is unprepared is Tom Brenneman. Uh, I, I, I just, I don't know how he has gotten where he has gotten. <laughs> I, I know, I think you, you like Tom. Uh, I don't. I mean, I like him personally, I bet. Uh, I don't like the way he calls a game. Uh, I don't like the chit-chat uh, with, with some of the, George Grand comes and does the Reds game sometimes. And yeah. it drives me insane because they lose focus of the game and I don't care if the Reds are behind by 10 runs or ahead by 10 runs focus on the game and they're talking about just about every other subject except the game and sometimes in a, an entire inning goes by and Brenneman, Tom Brenneman does this too they don't pick up on the action of the game they, they just they, they don't embellish it they, they're not doing their jobs and I don't know why their producers let them get away with it well, you know, yesterday was the final home game that Vin Scully had for the Dodgers. It was a big, big day for him. And it was a perfect send-off because, hey, he's in L.A., a Hollywood ending for him. And it ended in the 11th inning with a walk-off home run call. 
by Charlie Gulbertson to win the National League West. This was Vince Scully's last call in Dodger Stadium. Oh, and one to Charlie. Swung on a high fly ball to deep left field about the Yankees. Did you believe a home run? And the Dodgers have clinched the division and will celebrate on schedule. Leave it to the Dodgers. Charlie Culberson, a game-winning home run. What a moment to have it. And would you believe his first home run of the year? Well, the Dodgers did what they hoped to do. It was a struggle, but they won it on their own merit, 4-3. The last home run that Charlie Culberson hit would be two years ago in 2014 against Cincinnati. No emotion. <laughs> just right there, Mark. He he did it outstandingly, and it was just like he had rehearsed it and had done it hundreds of times because realistically he has. Well, he's probably done it thousands of times, actually. And uh, if there was a school for broadcasting, as there should be, he would be the guy that you would listen to. And uh, who was the guy who did the um, the Detroit Tigers for so long? Ernie Harwell. Ernie Harwell. Those guys were so good and so understated. And they reported the action in a professional way. Uh, they never got too high. They never got too low. And people who are in the broadcast world today would do themselves a great favor to go back and listen to those guys and how they called a game, and how they captured the emotion of the moment, and the, the, the color of the crowds, and all the things that they used to do. And you remember when they used to do, maybe you don't remember this, but at one time when the Reds, say, were on the West Coast, it was too late to carry the game. So they would have Wait Hoyt in Cincinnati reading off the ticker tape of what no, was happening. No, I don't remember. I remember reading about different cities doing that, but I never... Knew, yeah, I didn't, didn't know that. Oh, they used to have sound effects of the crowd mm-hmm. and the crack of the bat. Uh, you know, he would be reading off the ticker tape, and there's a long fly ball to deep left field, and the crowd noise would rise. And it took me a long time to realize he's in Cincinnati. He's, he's reading this off a of, – but it, it allowed those guys to really embellish the action, and they had to do that. And today's announcers, I don't think, could do it. Because they're talking about things, it just, it's maddening to me to, to, to listen, and especially on TV, with all the commercials and everything, they break the action, they, they break the tenseness of, of a moment with, with banter that does have anything to do with the game. But yeah. that's not the way it was when the Wade Hoyts and uh, Ernie Harwell and, and Ben Scully and those guys would, would do the games. Don Larson's perfect game? Oh, ben yeah. Scully did it. Yeah. The move from Brooklyn to L.A., Vin Scully was there. That's right. Sandy Koufax's perfect game, he did that one. You know, Kirk Gibson's home run, he did that. But here's the thing, Mark, he is not going to do the playoffs for the Dodgers because he doesn't want to be the story. Class, Classy guy. I mean, you know, I wondered about that because I said that he is going to go on the road for the final three games of San Diego because uh, I guess he can be on the bus going down there. But I wondered about the playoffs because I figured, well, wait a minute, if they're in the playoffs, they have at least one home game. They won the division. So, But you just gave me some news I didn't know. Thank yeah, you, David. he's not Thank going you. to do it. But here, get, get a load of this. You brought up Ernie Harwell, Harry Carey, Jack Buck, which, by the way, did you know Jack Buck graduated from Ohio State? I did know that, yes. He, yeah. Dave Niehaus. Mm. Joe Nuxhall, Skip Carey, Bob Prince, Milo Hamilton, Harry Callis, Mel Allen, Red Barber, all guys that I listened to growing up, they're all gone, Mark. They're all gone. You know, yeah. Al Michaels, I remember listening to him. His one year of doing the Reds, 72. That's right. And he, he called Johnny Bench's home run to right field against Pittsburgh. Uh, what up, Dave Justy, I think, a changeup. Yeah. Hit deep to right center field. And <laughs> I, I remember that so vividly. His voice but, cracked at the very end. Yeah. She's yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's exactly right. Yeah, those yeah. guys, 
they brought a, a, a color and texture to the game that I don't hear today. And I'm not being just because I'm an old guy, uh, but, but but go back and listen to those broadcasts. And you know, Jack Buck. I, I remember vividly being a kid. Do you remember who his uh, broadcast uh, partner was at one time? It was Harry Carey. Harry Carey, and then who Harry Carey's broadcast partner was? Oh, I know this. I really do, and I can't think of it off the top of my head now. Dizzy Dean. Dizzy Dean. And yes. Dizzy Dean used to broadcast the Saturday afternoon games with Pee Wee Reese. Uh, these and, guys, yeah. they, they were they were legends broadcasting the game. And uh, there's, uh, I have many recordings of Wade Hoyt. Uh, doing the Reds broadcast, but I remember in the summertime living in Cincinnati, turning on the, I could pick up the Cardinal broadcast on KMOX mm-hmm. uh, out, of, out of St. Louis, and hearing Jack Buck and Dizzy Dean and Harry Carey doing the Reds games when the Reds played in St. Louis. I always loved to hear the other announcers uh, talk about the Reds, and uh, it, it was a a tradition because very few people forget, very few of the games back then were telecast. Uh, now every game is telecast almost. I think it's right. 158 games this year for the Reds. Uh, so radio was your conduit to listening to baseball. And when you're a kid, and I remember going to bed, and it would be hot outside, and you have the radio next to your ear, and and listening to the ball. It, it was yeah. a it was a rite of passage. My grandmother used to love to sit on her front porch. With a beer in her hand, a cigarette in the other, listening to Ernie Harwell do the Tigers. Oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I, we, I remember. I remember picking up Ernie Harwell uh, from Detroit and listening to the Tigers play. Yeah, you know, Mike Shannon still does the Cardinals. Bob Euchre still does the Brewers. Those are two fun guys to listen to. Dick Enberg's still doing the Padres, Mark. I know. I, I really like Dick Enberg. He he doesn't yes. get too excited. He's 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 knowledgeable. And he talks about the game. Uh, that that's again the the thing that that just drives me wild with the, with the new with the new breed of announcers. And uh, but I guess that's what people want to hear. Mark, all right, you know, congratulations to Vin Scully. I want to move into a couple other things before we we wrap up tonight's show. Yesterday, benches clearing brawl between Washington and, and in their game yesterday against the Pirates. Because of a fake tag on on one of the on on, on one of the players yesterday uh, who had gotten a triple, I never knew you couldn't do a fake tag in Major League Baseball. Yeah, you're not allowed to deke the runner because what happens is what happened yesterday. Uh, you start to slide late. You think the ball's there, it's not there, and you can break an ankle. And he would he hurt his wrist or something. Um, uh, the player sliding in, and that is a no-no, and that's something you don't you don't do because a player can get hurt. Now they, well, used they do to it be, at second base all the time. Uh, no, they don't. Not anymore. They don't. They they used to, and, and they changed the rule. Uh, but uh, you're not supposed to do that. And even if it wasn't a rule, you, you know, players just don't do that to each other. You know, it, it typically is something that is frowned on in the other dugout a great deal, as you can see yesterday. I just wonder if Khan uh, knew that, if he if he was aware of that rule coming from, was he from Korea? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if he knows that's not the I, I bet he knows it now. <laughs> oh, pro- probably. You know, there is a show that came out on Fox last week, Mark, that, that got a lot of notoriety called Pitch. Yeah. And it's about the first woman pitcher. Um. I got to tell you, I saw it. I don't know how they're going to make a complete year out of it, but I've got to tell you, the first show I loved. I, I thought it was an out. I thought it was outstandingly done. Do you think that's ever um, a viable option? Do you, th- you think that could ever really happen? <clears throat> I, I think it, this was realistic because she had a pitch that she could use. I don't think ever. Uh, a woman could pitch in the major leagues just based upon being a power pitcher, but maybe somebody with control and uh, a good curveball. Yeah, maybe. I thought it could happen with a um, a good knuckleball. That it is something that a woman could certainly perfect as easily as a man. 
and you don't need that brute strength to throw. You're right. I, even, I tell you, even a breaking ball takes an enormous amount of arm strength you know, to, to get the rotation on the pitch and make it move. But I, I think a woman could throw a knuckleball. And I'm really surprised they haven't uh, tried to perfect that because the knuckleball is damn hard to hit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with, with her, it's a screwball. She she has a screwball that is is almost unhittable. And, um, you know, I, I thought the very first episode was extremely well done, Mark. I don't know if it's going to be that way. But I think I think it's worth at least taking a look, and I wanted to let let everybody know that. Good. Couple more things. Today in baseball, on this day in baseball, Mark, what happened? Oh my God! Two things. Two. I'll things. even give you the years. Okay. 1960 and 1961. Well, 1960. Uh... Of course, Mazeroski hit his home run, but that was in October. Um, Correct. But you're close. Pittsburgh won the pennant? Roger Maris hit his 60th home oh, run yeah. on this day in baseball in 1960. Okay. Now, no, 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 wait a minute. He hit that in 1961. No, it was in 1960. 61 is what he hit, but he hit his 60th. It was 1960. Was it? Yeah. It was 1960. Yeah. All right. Now in 1961. Uh, the Reds clinched the pennant. Congratulations. 8-3 to three win. Their first National League pennant since 1940. They won it over the Cubs in Wrigley Field. Yeah, remember I actually remember that. Remember what they that. did in the World Series? Uh, I went to that World Series, and they got beat uh, 4 out of 5 for the Yankees. Yep. You're, you are absolutely correct. Mark, our final thing tonight. Kind of away from baseball. Any final thoughts on Arnold Palmer? Uh, just a class act. I, I, I met him once um, at our club here in Dayton. Came down to play. He, he certainly wasn't uh, the, the player he had been, but uh, there was an aura about this guy. And he, he was a smart dude. He was a he was he flew his own jet. And he, he was enormously successful in business. And it just some guys just have that that thing, that aura around them, and he was one of them. Well, I, I, the golf world is is less today, losing losing Arnold Palmer. Mark, one other quick note from baseball. It has been announced that the Minnesota Twins are going to hire an Indians assistant general manager, Derek Falvey, to oversee their baseball operations. ESPN has been reporting that all day. So Derek Falvey will leave the Indians. He is going to the Minnesota Twins. As far as the Reds are concerned, what do they want to do in this last week? Just get everything packed up and go home? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of, uh, uh, of remorse over what's happened to this team. This is four years in a row now that this has happened, and this is more than a bad year. Uh, this is a bad organization. And, it, you know, the Reds just have not taken that as their mantra. They, they have to admit that what they're doing isn't working. And it will work next year, who knows, but uh, – it doesn't happen to the Cardinals. Uh, no, absolutely not. And, and it, there's no reason it happens to the Reds, except uh, and you can't blame them on the market, same size market. Uh, but if you don't put a good product out there, people aren't going to show up. Yeah, and, you know, it I, it stops at one place, right at the top, Bob right. Castellini and Walt Jockety. That's exactly you know, right. The Reds, they've got St. Louis throughout the Thursday, tomorrow, Wednesday and Thursday, and then they play this weekend in Chicago against the Cubs Friday, Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, and that's it for the Reds. The Indians, they are at Detroit tonight trying to clinch the American League Central. They need one win. That's all they need, and they've got a four-game set with the Tigers, three more after tonight, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday afternoon, and then they go to Kansas City to play a three-game set and end the regular season, and then the playoffs Looks like it's going to be Boston, Mark, but I don't know who it will be right now. It could be Boston, Baltimore, or Toronto. Well, so you know, Dave, i now become a full-time Indians fan, and I, I will share with you their glories and their defeats in equal measure, <laughs> and uh, we can commiserate after the season. All right, sounds good. We'll talk to you again next Monday night, Mark. Have a good one. That's going to do it for tonight's show. Don't forget, coming up this Friday night on UltimateSportsTalk.com is high school football. We will have... 
The Waynedale Golden Bears hosting the Northwestern Huskies. That's at 6.30 this Friday night on UltimateSportsTalk.com with the pregame show. Mark and I will be back again next Monday night with another Ohio Baseball Weekly show. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. For Mark, I'm Dave. Until next Friday night at 9. Have a good week, everybody. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking bad.